I want to take a few moments and, and just kind of direct your thoughts towards relationships. How many of you remember the song that we used to sing about each other in kindergarten? You know, when you saw like a, a boy and a girl sitting on the swing next to each other and all of a sudden you start in day and Aaron sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G, first comes, then comes the marriage, then comes the baby in a baby carriage. How many of you have figured out since kindergarten relationships got more complicated? Anybody figured it out? Now, some of you, that's actually been the trajectory of your life. Like, that, literally, that song is your story. First came love, then came marriage, then came the baby in the baby carriage. Others, well, they did it all backwards. They started on this end and said, uh-oh. And then they got the marriage, and now they're working on the love thing and trying to figure out how to keep that together. And some of y'all got love in a carriage, but no ring. And uh, yeah, cultural prophet Destiny's Child put a song out about it. If you liked it, you should have put a ring on it. And, and some are just all by themselves sitting in a tree. No K I S S I N G. <laughs> Can I just say, wherever you're at on the spectrum of relationships, I want to invite you for just a few moments to lean into the authority of God's word because God has a lot to say about relationships. We don't have time to go too deep in this today, but I want to lay a foundation for the next couple of weeks. You know, Tina Turner asked the question, what's love but a secondhand emotion? And according to the word of God, there's a lot more to it than that. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is having a conversation with the Sadducees. They're trying to trip him up. They fail as usual. And so the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they pose a question to him. It says in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 35, one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And then he said, a second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So Jesus not only answers the question, he clarifies to say that if you could get this right, then this would make every other Law in the Old Testament makes sense. All the things that you guys trip over and debate about and argue about, they can all be be summarized. If you get this right, it'll all make sense. God's objective for your life is that transform men and women would live in love with God and with their fellow man. That's God's plan. In his commands. And then in John chapter 13, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And in verse 34, he said this He said, A new command I give you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, verse 35 says, Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So in this moment, Jesus does something incredible. They already knew the golden rule. 
The golden rule, you know, Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But then in this moment, Jesus upgrades the golden rule to platinum status. And he says, don't just do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love people the way I love you. How did Jesus love them? He served them. He laid down his life for them. Paul describes love in Romans chapter 13 this way. He says, let no doubt, no debt remain outstanding except the continued debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. He's saying what Jesus said. He says in verse 9, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are all summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love, he writes, does not harm, does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Can I just remind all of us today that the most compelling thing about the church is our love? The most compelling thing that we can offer to the world is our love. And that should not surprise us because John, who who gave Jesus platinum rule, is also the one who said in 1 John 4, 8, whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. And here's the corner I want to turn for a moment today. When it comes to a compelling love, a love that points people to God, there is no greater demonstration of that love than a Christian marriage. No greater demonstration. Can I just take a moment today to advocate for a biblical view of marriage? To just come back to the foundation and look at what the word of the Lord says? Because before God ever established a government structure, before God ever established the nation, before God ever gave ten commandments or, or formed a covenant with Abraham, before he ever started the church or families, he started with marriage. It was the first covenant that God made. And, and of all the things in human history that God could have used to depict the, the bookends of the human narrative, he chose marriage. If you think about it, in Genesis chapter number 2, we see marriage as the first institution that God made. And then when you go to the back of the book in Revelation chapters 19 verse 7, marriage is the event that God selected to illustrate the, the culmination of the, end of the ages. I mean, God's had thousands of years to plan for that moment. He could have planned for the graduation ceremony of the Lamb. He could have planned for the coronation of the Lamb. But the Bible tells us that on that day when we are there with Jesus reunited face to face, we're going to be welcomed to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I want to say today, every Christian should honor marriage. Every Christian. In fact, that's exactly what the Bible says. In Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 4, it says marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. 
For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So if you're married, you have an obligation to honor marriage. How do you do it? You, you, you honor marriage by being devoted to your wife or your spouse. His wife, in my case, you can apply this to your own life. I'm preaching to me too. We honor marriage by loving them like Christ loved the church, by meeting their needs, by submitting our own desires to their desires. If you're not married, though, you should still honor marriage. This is not a text just for married people. If you're not married, how do you honor marriage? Well, you honor marriage by honoring and strengthening the marriages around you. Like, for example, Pastor Chris and his wife, Britt, she was in the first service, they're getting ready to go on a little trip together, a, a long overdue trip, right? Yeah. We're excited for them, but family and friends are going to be taking care of their kids to make that happen. And what are they doing? They're strengthening their marriage. That's what he was telling me the other day. I hope you don't mind me saying this. Uh, his daughter said, why can't you just go out for a date? Like, why do you have to go? He said, we need more than that. <laughs> How many of you know our marriages need more than that? We need the date nights, but sometimes we need more than that. And so people are strengthening their marriage by coming around them and helping them and serving that marriage. We honor marriage when we're not married by not acting like we're married. The Bible's very clear that sex was God's idea. It's a good idea. And it was designed to be enjoyed within the boundaries of a heterosexual, monogamous marriage for a lifetime. Let's just go to the Word for a moment. Because what can tend to happen in our lives is we, could, we start with the Word, and somewhere in our heart we, we know the Word. Maybe you can't find chapter and verse, but you understand the principles of the Word of God. But as I was thinking about this weekend, and, and all of our boys and girls serving on our ministry teams, and and the reality that, that my daughters are not doing kids' takeover anymore. They're already teenagers. I got one off at college now. And, and wow, how fast the wheels of time change. And my concern is that, that we can rest on the biblical foundation that we know. And I'm assuming some biblical literacy here. I know not everybody's at the same place. But in my own life, it's easy to rest on what I know. But I can forget easily how quickly things change. How quickly our culture has changed. How quickly the understanding of truth has changed. And we can blink twice and pass the church to a generation that's preaching a truth that's not true. So I just, I just want to go back and read what it says. Genesis chapter 2, verse 20 to 25 says, So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam... No suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and then he closed up the place with flesh. Now, now let me just say, God didn't parade all the animals in front of Adam as like a multiple choice. Like, what do you think of the ostrich? Fancy your eyes on the giraffe. You know, it, it wasn't like that. God was showing him something that's so important. As, as, as Adam was introduced to every animal, he realized there's something different about me. 
Man is the only one created in the image of God. That's why it's so important that we, we can't just live by our animalistic desires. Because God was showing him, you're not just an animal. There's something in you that, that has the, the fingerprint of God. You, you've got God qualities. I created you male in my image. And in a moment, he's going to create female in his image. And so the word goes on to say, the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And then Paul, in the New Testament, he takes this same idea. He quotes that verse that I just read, and he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But then he adds these words. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So, so Paul says, what you need to understand is all of the things that I'm teaching you. <clears throat> and we don't have time to get into his teaching today, but he says, all the things that I'm teaching you and instructing you about marriage, you need to know it's a metaphor. It's, it's an illustrated sermon in the earth today because what I'm actually doing is your marriage is a message of God's love and his pursuit for us. That's what your marriage is intended to be. And I don't need to remind you that we live in a world today. It's a new era as Americans where, where our government is making decisions for the people that are contrary to your personal desires. Maybe even contrary to your convictions as a believer. And as we navigate those types of circumstances, I can't help but think back on some of the changes that were made just in recent years. In 2015, we changed at the Supreme Court level the definition of what marriage is. Now that, that feels like it happened last season. That feels to me like, you know, that, that was just a couple of years ago, right? But if you talk to the students in our youth group, it was over half their lifetime ago. Can I just tell us today that the government doesn't get to define what marriage is. God already has defined what marriage is. And, and I expected I'd get a lot of amens on that. We know that. The caution is that we don't just live with this inner knowing of that and not communicate the truth to the next generation. Because in the Obergefell and Hodges case, the United States, just seven years ago, stopped agreeing with every culture in human history in defining marriage as a union between a man and a woman. We just redefined that in the last seven years as a nation. What I want to say to you is what the court can make legal, it can't make moral. Amen. Amen. And we're going to find that to be the case more and more. Our culture today says things like, love is love. That's a campaign I, uh, I've seen. Maybe you've seen it too. Love is love. So the idea is that it, if the feeling is genuine, if you feel love, well, 
then there's no wrong way to define that because love is love and everyone's entitled to it. But what does the word of God tell us about just following those emotions and those desires and those inclinations? Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. The Bible says in John 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Who can, who can understand it? We've all been there before. We've all been in a place where we thought we knew that we knew that we knew what we were supposed to do only to have to wake up the next day and eat humble pie. Oh, man, I missed it. I was, I was way off. We've all had moments in our life where our heart deceived us. We just wanted it so bad. It just seemed right. It felt right. Anybody besides me thanked God that he didn't answer your prayers you prayed years ago the way you wanted him to answer? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I look back at my high school yearbook and I thank you, God, for not answering some of those prayers I prayed in early adolescent years. So where, where do we find direction? Psalm 119, verse 9, asks the question, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. It's the only way. In this generation or any generation. Psalm 32, 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eyes on you. Can I tell you, it, well, imagine it like this. Imagine you, you go to see a doctor, and the doctor tells you because they're feeling, they, they feel you're uneasy, they feel you're uncomfortable, they, they sense the, the heaviness of your heart, and so after taking several tests, they tell you it, it's, not, it's not a big deal, it's nothing serious, and you're relieved only to learn later that it was actually stage four cancer. But the doctor didn't want to hurt you or burden you with a truth so painful. How many of you understand that would not be love? That would be the opposite of love. And a lot of times we, we feel this. I feel this even today, having less than 30 minutes to try to jump into the weeds of a topic like this for even just a moment. I recognize I, there's no way that I can communicate my whole heart and clarity to everybody's individual situation. Because we all know people, we all love people, and life gets complicated and messy when we say amen and walk out of the church doors. But, but beyond all of the complications, love has to begin with truth. Now, now, what you do to, to diagnose the cancer, the steps that you take, the conversations that follow, all of that's a painful and a process that requires a, a tenderness and a grace to walk alongside someone. But love that doesn't begin with the truth is not love. And so the Bible, when it comes to the issues of marriage and our sexuality, it's very clear. Doesn't mean it's not complicated. And just because it's contradictory to a lot of people's heart desire and living realities, it doesn't, mean that, it doesn't mean that you don't love someone because you stand for the truth. It doesn't mean that you're not willing to walk with someone through a process 
Telling the truth actually means I care more about you than I care about what you think about me. Because if my convictions are based on your opinion of me, I actually love me. But if I love you enough to lead you into the truth, I'm thinking of you. Every Christian should honor marriage. Every Christian. Even Christians who are not called to be married. And by the way, some Christians are not called to be married. This is, this is not supposed to be everybody's story. Say, how do you know that? Because Jesus never got married, and I'm pretty sure he was perfect. So not everybody's called to be married, but everybody's called to honor marriage. The Apostle Paul was single and celibate. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talked about it. In fact, he said in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 7, I wish that all of you were as I am. But each one of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, and another has that. Personally, I thank God I have that. Not this. But you know what? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. Eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. Now, i got to be honest with you. I never prayed for the gift of celibacy. Never desired that one. But Paul goes on to explain in verse 8 and 9. He says, now to the unmarried and to the widow, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul is saying, you know, if, if you're in a season or a life of singleness, God has gifts and graces for you to thrive in that season. But, but if, you, if you can't function in that season, it's better that, it's better that you move out of that season than to burn with passion. And then he kind of qualifies it all later in the same chapter. In verse 17, he says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule that I lay down for all of the churches. So here's what he said. Whatever situation you're in, you should live as a believer. In other words, what Paul is saying is, don't make excuses for your conduct because of where you're at in life. He's saying that God in his grace has assigned you. In other words, you're right where God wants you. And God, God never assigns you to anything he doesn't equip you for. His grace is sufficient like that. And so he says, don't make excuses for your conduct. Live as a believer in the situation that you're in. And it, it, it may or may, may not include a baby carriage. It may or may not include marriage. But I can promise you it includes love. Love demands relationships. You can't love people if you're doing life alone. Life is all about relationships. You can be happy with stuff. Be happy with a good job, with a nice car, with things. But you can only be happy with those things in the context of having healthy relationships. But there's nothing that can fill the void of relationships that are broken or non-existent. Say, how do I know that? I know that because God showed us that in the beginning. We go back to the word. In the beginning, God said, it is not good that man be alone. 
That was before there was sin. That's when the world was still perfect. That was before the serpent entered the garden. God said something was not good. Everything else was good. This is not good. And he didn't say it's not good that man is single. He said it's not good that he's alone. So we often read that verse at weddings, and so we just assume it's about marriage. But it's about relationships. God has called us into relationships. I want to just encourage somebody today, wherever you're at in the spectrum of relationships, that we're not clinging to those relationships or running after those relationships to find the satisfaction that only comes from one source. See, the Bible says in Psalm chapter 16 and verse 11, you make known to me the path of life and will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Now, it doesn't say in marriage there is fullness of joy. It says in your presence there is fullness of joy. So my, my marriage doesn't complete me. My marriage doesn't fulfill me. My relationship with the Lord fulfills me and equips me for my marriage and for every other relationship. So I want to ask the worship team to, to come back, and I want to just turn a corner one more time and invite you into a, a thought process for a moment. I want to invite you to consider if there's any relationship in your life or maybe the lack thereof that you're looking to fill that void, that joy that you need. See, there's a lot of people that, that come to me for marriage counseling and they actually don't need to work on their marriage so much as they need to have an encounter with God. What I mean is we, we put so much expectation on our spouse that we would be fulfilled in their presence when the word of the Lord says you're actually going to be fulfilled in my presence. In my presence there's fullness of joy. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. So it doesn't really matter how, how big the ring on the finger is. That's not the hand that pleasure ultimately comes from. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So I, I just want to pray for you, and I want to invite you to stand. Here, here's what I know. The Holy Spirit wants to speak to you and to me very personally I, I could never speak to everybody's situation in this time span but I, I was in the back of the room yesterday and, and I saw all the ladies at the women's conference just down here at the altar just worshiping seeking the Lord just, just getting downloads from heaven and I was reminded again even yesterday of how important it is that we take a moment to allow the God of heaven who loves us to speak directly into our heart and life. It would be a travesty if you came and listened to me for 30 minutes and then left without ever giving opportunity for your heavenly Father to speak into your life. So I ask these kids to just come up and they're just going to prophesy over us that the word of the Lord is a better word. He speaks a better word for your life. He speaks a better word than divorce, 
than breakup, than infertility, than abuse. He speaks a better word. And I don't know what you need from heaven today, but the windows are open. And I want to invite you to just seek the Lord as they sing this. Father, right now we come to you in the precious name of Jesus. Lord, I ask that you would speak to everyone in the room. Lord, for every parent, for every grandparent, Lord, bring us back to the truth and to the mandate you've placed on our life to lead the next generation into godliness and righteousness. God, for every young person who's struggling with understanding their own sexuality or just getting mixed messages from a very confusing culture, God, I pray today right now for the marriage that's struggling. God, would you bring healing and reconciliation and restoration for those who have already had to pick up the pieces from a broken past. God, I pray that at this place in their life, they would live as believers, not looking back, not living in yesterday, but living in the assignment the Lord has for them for your glory and for your honor. God, we just seek you.